Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night shir. The Shabbos Pasha Shalach. We started the cycle of Pirkei For those who say this, Pirkei throughout the summer, he started this last week, this week will be Pirkei Sheni. This week was Yudbeis, actually yesterday was Yudbeis Sivan. Pasha Shalach, as we all know, comes up with the story, which we don't call it anything in this Tera story. tells us about the episode that is called it of Cheta Meraglim. The spies that went into Eretz Yisrael to see what the land actually looked like came back and gave a very adverse report repercussions and ultimately wandering in the desert for 40 years another story another happening in this week's Parsha Taylor tells us of the Mekreshish Eitzim the fellow that desecrated the Holy Shabbos, whether he was chopping wood or gathering wood, whatever it was that he was doing, in turn, the question was brought up, what his punishment should be, and he was put to death. And finally, the parsha finishes off with the parsha of tzitzis. The garment every man wears. A four-cornered garment with it attached the strings known as tzitzis. What did the spies actually do? What was the actual sin of the Meraglim? Mesha told them, go to the land, see what the land is all about, who are the dwellers, 
They strong, are they many, are they few? They came back and had to respond to what he asked. <clears throat> what was the sin therefore? They say, Efes Kiazam Hayeshev Ba'aretz. They were told to report the honest truth. Should they have come back and told a lie instead? They said what they saw. This is a question that Ramban asks. The Ram answers that the sin of the Meraglim actually was after the Meraglim repeated what they saw it was sufficient. But yet they added on. We cannot go up and conquer these people because they are stronger than us. They were not told to say their opinion, they were told to give a report what they saw. By them adding was their opinion. So let's say that was their opinion. Is that such a terrible sin? A person is not allowed to give an opinion either. Mesha sent the Miraglim to know what is the easiest way they can conquer the Holy Land. He said, go out there and find out what is the easiest way that we can conquer. But it was definite that if the Almighty said we're going to conquer the land, that they could conquer the land. In that case... When they came back and they reported what they saw in the land, how could they put a doubt, throw a doubt? We cannot conquer. If the Almighty said everything, they're going to conquer. This is a lifelong lesson to us. The main point, the main foundation of keeping Torah mitzvahs is the knowledge that since all mitzvahs that are commanded by the Almighty it is clear that we can do them because the Almighty does not ask anyone to do anything they could not do and so each and every human being even just to know that he has to say that the Almighty would not command him to do something if he couldn't. So much more so if the Almighty God, who tells us to do something, he did not make God forbid a mistake. He does not request from a person something that is not in his capacity to do.
and therefore everyone is given the strength to do it and to overcome it. The Mendel Futafas was a chosid of the Rebbe Rashab still. As a little child, he was born, his father died before he was born, and his mother died when he was an infant, and he was raised by an aunt, an aunt. And his aunt raised him, and his aunt happened to be very friendly with the Rebbe of the Rebbe Rashab. And at eight years old, she secured a yechidus with the Rebbe Rashab and Reb Mendel. Little Reb Mendel went into the Rebbe Rashab in private audience. And the Rebbe Rashab blessed him with longevity, long life, and that he should remain a chassid. Years went by, Reb Mendel lived the life of a chassid in Germany, in Russia, and obviously was sentenced to several years in Siberia. He wouldn't eat the food there though. His wife would send him cartons of cigarettes once a month, and he would change out the cigarettes for food, and he would have his own commissary, he would cook his own food, and he was surviving. One month his package didn't arrive. Unexplicably. And so the first day, obviously, if he can't cook, he's not going to eat. And the second day went by without eating, and he began to get very, very weak. And the third day, lying in bed and getting ready to meet his maker, one Jew, who unfortunately folded to the communist regime, but was in the same camp, but his little better status, had Rachmanus had pity on Reb Mendel and came to him with some soup that they made with the meat bones. But it wasn't really a soup of meat bones because the meat, the bones that were there were taken out right away as soon as they got cooked and then the soldiers went and added more water than, they could, than there was before. It probably didn't even taste like there was anything in it before. And he said to him, Mendel, it's Pekuch Nefesh. Your life is on the line. You must eat. And Mendel said to him, barely audibly, barely able to speak. He said, I was blessed by the Rebbe Rashab to have, I will live for a long life. And therefore I know I'm going to live a long life. And therefore, I know I will not die. And lo and behold, the very next day, the cigarettes arrived, and he was able to trade out and get some food. The emuna that we can overcome. Sunglasses. story is told back in many many years ago in Australia 
Brisbane, Australia. A nice Protestant family. Husband, a wife, and a little girl. 10, 11, 12 years old. They live the regular life. Happy-go-lucky child. Got what she needed, when she needed. House. She had her own TV in her room. She had a beautiful room. She had whatever she needed, she had. Only child, only girl. What else could she ask for? One day the child, about 12 years old, went to the library. And she saw a new book. This is probably in the early 1960s. And the new book was labeled The Holocaust. So a curious child takes out this big new book. And is mortified. One page after the other of these emaciated figures, we know anyone that's read or seen Holocaust pictures of the people in the concentration camps, what they looked like, what what became of them. And then there were pictures of mass graves, hundreds, thousands of people in a grave. And she was reading and reading and reading about what's going on here. And how the millions and millions of people were killed. And it says how they were exterminated, what was done to them, and this and that, but it doesn't say why. Why were they killed? She was extremely perturbed, extremely upset. She came home and she was visibly sick to her stomach. And her mother knew that she had read this book. And when she tried to discuss it, her mother totally changed the subject. (coughs) Don't even think about it. Child could not forget. Child saw those figures before her eyes all night long. One week and two weeks. And then one day the child was reading a newspaper... And she heard about this very special rabbi in Brooklyn, New York. The Lubavitcher Rebbe. And she saw that they wrote about him, that he helps people, he advises people, he guides people. Wonderful. She took the address down and she wrote a letter to the Rebbe. My name is, whatever it is, Sally Ann, whatever it is. I am a Protestant girl, my parents are Protestants. We live in Brisbane, Australia, and I saw this Holocaust book, and I am mortified. And I want to know, why? What happened here? Two weeks later, she receives a response from the Rebbe. An answer, a letter from the Rebbe saying that she should go to Melbourne and to meet Rebbe Chaim Gutnik. She had no problem looking up. She didn't have a Google at the time, I'm sure. There was no internet. She looked it up in the phone book, for those who know what that is. It's one of these old, antiquated, bound books that had many, many people's names and numbers in there. We get it, you're old. And addresses. (laughs) And she looked up in the phone book and she called up and made an appointment to meet Rabbi Gutnik.
On the appointed time, she arrived at Rabbi Gutnik's home, and she expressed her issues, her problems. And Rabbi Gutnik did his utmost to try to explain to this little child, time 12, 13 years old, but obviously quite mature and intelligent. And he took her name and address randomly. After all, she wasn't Jewish. There was nothing really that he had to continue to pick up pieces with. And she went home. She was not satisfied though. Rabbi Gutnik did not give her the satisfactory answers. Did not set her straight as we say. And peace avoided her. A week, a month. And Rabbi Gutnik receives a letter from the Rebbe. With a question in it. What happened to the Jewish girl from Brisbane? Rabbi Gutnik was fascinated. Jewish girl? Must mean that girl. Immediately he shuffled through all his papers and he actually found the address. And he came to the home and they greeted him and he explained to them that the daughter had been to visit him, was very disturbed about this Holocaust. And I saw she was visibly sick from it, ill from it. She wanted to know how she's doing. Well, the parents said she's not doing very well. She's just not coping with this. Rabbi Gutnik took this opportunity to discuss with them who they are, to try to question them, to find and discover, to see who, where, when. Do they have some kind of lineage, some kind of. Because after all, the Rebbe said they're Jewish. They're Jewish. But questions, whatever they may be, they got nowhere. These people were totally in denial. They totally did not have any Jewish connection. Rabbi Gutnik was quite shocked because he knew what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe doesn't make such mistakes. A few weeks later, Rabbi Gutnik gets a frantic message. The young girl had a stroke. This whole story took such a toll on her. She had a stroke, she suffered a stroke. And she was in a comatose status, lying in hospital. Immediately he ran to the hospital. Walked in, shocked to see this child connected to all these different machines. Parents are beyond themselves, crying. And the doctors had given up hope. They were in such despair. Rabbi Gutnik didn't know what to do. He doesn't know any Protestant prayers. He didn't know how to help. What is he going to do here? Suddenly the mother says to him, Rabbi Gutnik, I speak to you outside a moment. And he steps out with the mother. 
And the mother says, I will tell you the truth. I was born in England. I was born Jewish. At 17 years old, I was frustrated from the Judaism. I picked myself up, I came to Australia, I converted. But I guess that didn't do anything. I guess I'm still Jewish. He said, yes. And so is your daughter. And he said to him, it would only be right if you you would tell her. Who knows, maybe that will snap her out of it. The mother started to cry and say, how can I do that to my husband? How can I shock my husband of all these years? All of a sudden he should find out I'm Jewish. What would that do to him? What would that do to our marriage? Rabbi Gutnik said, you know what? Send him out to me. I will talk to him and distract him. In the interim you tell your daughter she's Jewish. The husband came out, and Rabbi Gutnik discussed and talked and discussed, and put scenarios down, etc. In the meantime, the mother told the child that she is Jewish, that the mother is Jewish and the child is a Jewish child. And she belongs to that nation that would kill, that suffered the death of six million. She belongs to that nation, she's part of those people. Needless to say, it was a shock when Rabbi Gutnik and the father walked back in the room to see mother and daughter arm in arm, hugging each other, crying on each other's shoulders. She just came out of the whole thing. (coughs) They called in the doctors. Doctors immediately removed everything from her. And the fact that she found out that she was Jewish brought such peace to her that it literally healed her. So we see, therefore, that the mission that we have, the mission that we are given, is a mission that we can never renege upon. For it's a mission that we can do. And if it's something that we can do, we have to see to it that we go through with it, we fulfill it. Just to go off the subject a little bit, but back on the subject of the same thing. The end of the Pasha, we said, speaks about tzitzis. The osu lahem tzitzis al kan And tzitzis should be made on the corners of their garments. What is tzitzis, says Rashi? Hashem apsilim atluyimba. On the name of these threads that hang. As it says, Ve'yikacheni betzitzis reishi. Davar Achas says Rashi, another opinion. Tzitz Hashem ure'isem eisei. It's going according to the word, the concept of you should see them. Like it says, Kimemetzitz min hacharakim. The word tzitz is a visual. Terah tells us, Re'isem Eisei Uzakartem Eskol Mitzvah Hashem. 
If you will see them, you will remind yourself of all the mitzvahs of Hashem. There are two ways of doing that. The mitzvah of tzitzis itself, through making tzitzis and wearing them, ur and seeing them, is an extra mitzvah. To make them, to wear them, and to see them. Or do we say that the mitzvah is ur The mitzvah of tzitzis is that you should see them. And that's why the tzedukim made the mistake of saying that the Risa Mesa is what it says by the tzitzis, they would hang the tzitzis on the wall in their house and look at them. And they would see the tzitzis. What's the difference to Din if the mitzvah is actually to see them or if it's a plus to the rest of the mitzvah? Because if you cannot see a tzitzis and you say that the Risa Mesa is the mitzvah itself, you have to see them then you're not doing the mitzvah. Because you can't see them, you're not doing the, you're not accomplishing the mitzvah, but it's a mitzvah. On the other hand, if you want to say it, it's a mitzvah, is an out, is an extra part of the mitzvahs, is an extra part to the mitzvah. Then even when you can't see the mitzvah, you can't see the tzitzis, you're still doing the mitzvah. So there are two ways, two explanations in the word tzitzis. So according to the explanation that tzitzis is the concept of what Isa may say, So we understand this is the gather of the mitzvah of tzitzis. Mashenke in the Pirish of tzitzis is the strings, the threads that have to be seen. So the hefts of the tzitzis, the actual item, the physical, is only the psilum themselves. And when you wear a garment with these things, even if you can't see them, you're still doing the mitzvah. The Rechayim HaKadosh writes, when it comes to the Mitzvah Tzitzis, Chazal tell us that Kishiro Meisha, Meisha Mekeshesh, Meisha saw the story of what happened to the Mekeshesh Eitzim, as we said before, the one that chopped the wood. Hashem, he said before the Ebesh, to be Meachel, in the weekday, Levishin Yisrael Tefillin. The Jews were Tefillin. V'zeichen HaMitzvah, and they remember the Mitzvah. But biyema Shabbos, b'mayiskru, On Shabbos, how will they remember? Tfilin on during the weekday, but what happens on Shabbos? Ve'eshiv Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty answered him. Hareini neisin la mitzvahs tzitzis sheboyiskru. I give you the mitzvahs of tzitzis, the talis that we wear to remember. What is the reason that tzitzis actually reminds us of the mitzvahs? We've said this many times. Tzitzis is gematria 600. Tzadik is 90, Yud is, is 10 is 100. Again, Tzadik and Yud is 200. And Tuf is 400, 600. The Tzitzis are 8 strings and 5 knots. The 8 strings and 5 knots is 13, which reminds us of the 613 mitzvahs. Thus, 
understood. If the idea is that we should remember the mitzvahs of God, remembering 613 mitzvahs through the tzitzahs, you could just take the strings. Why do we need the whole talus for? Mitzvahs have different ways that they connect us to God. There's a mitzvah to make a brach on food. There are certain foods that we ingest for a mitzvah. Matzah, moror. We eat it and it's a mitzvah. Karben Pesach, Karbonis. We eat them, we get a mitzvah. These mitzvahs become one with the physical body. Our physical essence becomes one with these mitzvahs. Masha Enkein. There are other mitzvahs that are chitzeni, that are outside, that enclose us. The tefillin are the talus. There are garments that go on us, the tefillin get wrapped upon us. So it's only a garment, the talus is a makif that comes from bechutz. And something that's makif, that surrounds us, and that comes on the outside, it's mind-boggling that such a thing should be higher than any other mitzvah. And so much so that it reminds us of all the mitzvahs. But since it's something that's so high, it's something that we cannot ingest. It's something that we cannot take from the inside. We only can have it, we can only deal with it on the outside. And this is the lesson of the Talus. We have to know that the 613 mitzvahs that are hinted in tzitzis are continued and they are brought through and they come through with the Talus. Which the English of the Maidam HaSeichel. It's something that's higher than Seichel. Only when we take these tzitzis, the way they are hanging on a talus that is mislisatev betzitzis, that has totally enclosed us, only then can they serve their purpose. Only then do we know and recognize that all the inyanam of Teda mitzvahs and their sources and their levels that don't even have it, we can't even grasp to anymore. Then it becomes a mitzvah. But if you took tzitzis without a talis, there's nothing to it. There's no mitzvah. And that would not remind you of anything. It is only the fact that the talis envelops us, takes us and surrounds us, that we are able to, it encompasses us, that we are able to reach, ascertain this level. Let us examine for a moment the Mekreshish Eitzim. A man went, chopped wood on Shabbos, gathered the bundles together, for all to see. And desecrated the Shabbos, and for this he was punished by death. Let us delve in a moment into the halachas of Shabbos. 
There are Lamed Tes Melochus in Shabbos, of Melochus. 39 jobs that a person can do, known as Av Melochus, brought from the Teda on Shabbos. Basically were things that were done by the Levim on the Mishkan, loading, unloading, etc. on the Mishkan, sorting, building, lighting fires, all these things were done in the Holy Temple. There's from that told us of Shabbos. The Av Malachis have told us, which are like children, derivatives of this Aveda. Lighting a fire, keeping something warm, putting something onto a fire, cooking on Shabbos, etc. A Malacha on Shabbos, though, turning on a light is prohibitive on Shabbos. Prohibited. What happens to the poor person that went into a dark bathroom and subconsciously turned on the light and goes, Oy vey, what have I done? It's Shabbos. It was the middle of the night, he went to the bathroom, he turned off the light. And he realized, I vey, it's Shabbos. No? Is this fellow also considered desecrating Shabbos to a level that the, God forbid, he would be given the death penalty? I don't think so. There's a Shagig involved. There's also a concept of Melacha Shetzicha Legufa. Doing a Melacha that a person actually needs for herself. Cooking on Shabbos. Lighting a fire. Things that a person will do for himself with the intention of doing this for himself even though it's Shabbos and he knows it's desecrating Shabbos. The Mekeshish Eitzim had only one intention. And that was to drive home a message to Klal Yisrael, to his brethren, that you may not desecrate Shabbos, and it is punishable by death. Now the fact is, Enedeme, there's no comparison hearing to seeing seeing is believing hearsay is something a person says eh, you heard about it for the person to see another person being Mechal Shabbos and see being punished for it Wow, this takes a total different life. Yes, you told us about it. Yes, you taught us the laws, etc. But we didn't make the connection. We didn't find the severity. Only now, when the Makeshish went and did this physically, and physically had to be put to death, 
was the Mekeshish able to drive home a message? Klal Yisrael, Acheinu B'nei Yisrael. Look what happens if we do an Aveda. So in essence, he did not do this for himself. He did not do this to derive pleasure. He did this solely to teach a lesson and to be to be Mekadish Shem Shemayim, to sanctify God's name. This was Mesha's question. When he was brought before Mesha, what do we do with him? Mesha was in turmoil, he was in doubt. This man did this Lishma, he did it really fully, with full proper intention. He did not want to desecrate God's name, God forbid. He did not want to desecrate God's Shabbos, God forbid. He wanted to make a Kiddush Hashem, he wanted to sanctify God's name. Hence Mesha was thinking, does he deserve the death penalty? It was not not something that he was doing for himself. But in essence and in truth being, the bottom line is what we look at. And the bottom line is he did desecrate the Holy Shabbos. And although it was with the proper intention, his proper intention would not have been fulfilled if it was not brought into fruition, if he was not put to death. There is a machlik, not a machlik, there are different opinions. The Vilna Gon, for example, has an opinion that thinking ta- thoughts of Teda are sufficient for Teda learning. Whereas the Alter Rebbe writes clearly in Tanya, that if a person doesn't say the words, doesn't pronounce the words, he's not mispaul and he's not learning. person needs to actually say it, to enunciate it. This is what we come to a lesson here. The person... needs to see that only my only Mahshava and Dibur are not enough. Thought and talk is not enough. The Maisa, the main thing is the Maisa action. And the action here that he took is what came through. The action that he took is what taught the lesson. Teaching the people how to approach and how to do a mitzvah. Let us revisit this story, this happening here. The Altarev brings down in Tanya. 
where? Um, towards the end of Tanya, actually. It should be in the last, amongst, I think, the last five parochim of the first part of Tanya, of the Kuti Amorim. Anywhere between Perik Mem Ches and Nungimel. Chapter 48 and 53. I have to look it up again, though, because we just said it recently in Chitas. Is it? You remember learning it? Because mm-hmm. it was recent. It was like a month ago. Meisha Rabbeinu is told Shlach Lecho Anoshim. Lecho Ledaitecho. You think it's a good idea, Meisha? Go for it. Send them. Meisha turns to Yeshua. Vayikra Meisha Leishaya bin Nun. He changed his name from Heishaya bin Nun. Yeshua, he calls him not Yeshua. Tells the Tadis, Palalov Yudke Yeshiacho Metzas Menagun. He davened for him that his, he should be, God should protect him from the advice of the Meragun. The spies. Shlach lecha anoshim says Rashi anoshim. What are the anoshim? The anoshim were pure people. All of the twelve were pure tzaddikim. They were all kshedim. Why did Moshe have to daven for Yeshua to be protected from their evil thoughts? They didn't have evil thoughts. They were holy people. On the other hand, if he needed a special prayer, why didn't he daven for all of them? Why did he only protect Yeshua? Chassidus explains, we look at the actual argument of the Meraglim. They wanted to stay in the desert so they could stay and only be involved in spiritual matters. They did not want to have to be involved in the mundane world of planting and sowing, etc., of working in the fields. Therefore, it's possible that because they were at such a level, they came to this problem. Yeshua, on the other hand, who ultimately is the one that took over Meshach Rabbeinu as the leader of the Jews. He didn't have this taina. He didn't have this argument. Because he needed to think a general picture of Am Yisrael. He needed to think how to get the Jews into the Holy Land. And therefore, he knew that the whole idea of the world is to make a dwelling place for God. And although that these were actual 
Meraglim were kosher. They were holy people. And their taina, their claim that they were giving was correct. Meishe Rabbeinu Davin Dafka for Yeshua. Because Yeshua was not in that plan. He was not in that page. He was not homed in with them. Pasha spends a lot of the portion of the Pasha telling us about this Miraglum. Large portion devote dedicates to this the punishment, the aftermath, the deaths. When they left, it gives a detailed When they returned, excuse me, and gave their report, the Torah tells us in detail. The people that Mesha sent, to pass by the land. Returned and caused havoc here. Spoke badly of the land. And these people will die. For they spoke bad about the land, they will die in a Magefa. A plague. The fact that it says they will die via Musu and with a Magefa, we understand why the Pasuk goes to the great length of telling us. Because the truth is, we don't have to know this. We know that they were the people. We hear at this point already, they told over the story, they repeated, they told what they saw, and they blasphemed, etc., and they saw the damage they did. What do we need this whole Pasuk again? And the Rechayim actually asks that this whole Pasuk is extra. Because we know already the Meisha sent these people. The punishment for the Meraglim, the Jews suffer, is that they spend 40 years in the desert. In the course of those 40 years, the people that between 20 and 60 years of age died. However, the Meraglim died immediately. Since the Pasik wants to enumerate that they died immediately, and it is to these wicked people, there is no actual sympathy or empathy, whatever you want to call it. Therefore, it tells us clearly here the sin that they did. The Chaim enumerates how is it that the Apostle goes to great lengths to explain each and every fact and adds the sin of the Miraglim. He writes 
Such a thing should be written in a hint. Why is he going enumerated so specifically? To understand this, just B'derech HaPshat, Pshut HaShem says before, there's one direction this Pasuk is taking us. Although the rest of the continuation of the Pasha doesn't show it. In the words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Meshe and Aaron, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty, speaks to Meshe and Aaron about the Meraglim, he says to them, Ad Mosai Azeis, Asher This is chapter 14, verse 27. How long will this wicked nation come to argue with me? Meaning to say, said the Abishnah, said HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that this is all directly against God. And in continuation in verse 35, when it comes when it get to the other Yidin that were influenced by the Meraglim, I had spoken, says God. So that be done to the entire nation, this wicked one who has stood up against me. Personal against God. But this Pasuk that now we're talking about, these were Tlunot against Moshe, these were arguments and fights to Moshe himself personal. Not on God, but on Moshe. Although originally they were also against Meshach, like it said before that, in verse 2, chapter 14, First of all, it mentions Meshach and Aaron together. So it wasn't a direct attack only to Meshach. It was directed at the uh, hierarchy, really, Meshach and Aaron. And secondly, Sof Sof, these whole, not these whole arguments were to the Abishta were more on Moshe. So then how does the Pasuk come now to a summation of the sin of the Meraglim prior to their punishment? Where, only when it talks about how they sinned against Moshe. And doesn't mention the main pointer, the fact that they sinned against God Himself. The 40 years started from when they left Mitzrayim. Because the total was of a journey that took from Mitzrayim to Etzisrael. How long is it going to be from when you leave Etzisrael, Mitzrayim, to get into Israel be 40 years? Ultimately, they wanted 40 years now. So, they were told now, today, after the second year, you're now going to wander for 40 years total. So in other words, if I tell you on Tuesday that for this week you're going to get X, Y, or Z. 
This week will not start from Tuesday till next Tuesday. It will have started from Shabbos to Shabbos. This entails the whole week. So therefore, they were told their entire journey, from when they left Egypt till they arrived in Israel, will be 40 years. Hence it includes even the two years prior. We could perhaps say the explanation of this whole union. The Psukim that I mentioned prior, how the Almighty was angry at Bnei Yisrael, and he says, In verse 12, I will totally eradicate them. And still it all, Mesha managed to pray for them. So much so that in verse 20, the Almighty says, I have forgiven. They will not die immediately, only over 40 years span, slowly. And nobody will die under 60 years of age. So now we need an explanation. Why did Mesh's prayer not help for the Meraglim as well? Why did they die immediately in that case? Salakti Kidvarakha, he said, don't kill them now. Why did the Meraglim die immediately? The Medrashah Chazal explained that the Meraglim did not actually die that very day. The end of Megillah's Tainus. Same thing also in Tzmokhtam, the Tzmokhtam, and Arach, Erechayim, Simen Tov Kuf Pei Siv Beis. But according to Pshutah Shemikra, it's understood, a regular explanation, that they immediately died. As goes on with the continuation of the Psukim. In order to answer this, the Pasuk adds on, Vayamusu Ho'anoshim, and the people died. Who are the people? The Vahanoshim Asheshalach Mesha. The Surah Sarah's Vishu Vayalinu Olav. It's called Eda. Because they wanted to cause turmoil and to bring a, an uprising against Mesha. So much so they wanted to even cause people to say that it's returned to Egypt. And therefore Mesha's Tvila could not help them. As we read once in Rashi before in Pajas Achli Mais. Also, the Pshat of the of the Mikra. A prosecuting attorney cannot become a lawyer. And also we know, One attribute goes, faces the other. So although B'nai Yisrael came to fight Meisheh, it was not necessarily intention against Moshe himself. They were simply worried to be killed by the sword. The Meraglim in turn did not have that. They wanted to go head on with Moshe Rabbeinu. So much so that we return, upon return, Rashi says, Kishishavu, Mitur Aretz, Herimu Alav, they caused literally almost a civil war. 
So when it explains that the Tulunas of the Meraglim was actually against Moshe himself, that's why Rashi comes and tells us in the beginning of the first part of the Pasha, the Pasha's Miriam. Why is the Pasha's Meraglim right next to Pasha Miriam? Because Shaloksal Iski she got punished for what she said about her brother and these wicked people saw it and didn't do anything they didn't take a lesson what she spoke about her brother was not so evil she didn't say let's throw out Moshe she didn't say let's overthrow Moshe what did she get punished for this Miriam spoke about her brother Moshe But not enough that they didn't understand that if a sister talks about a brother, that she gets punished. How much more so everybody else has to get punished? But why did it say that she spoke Tafka about her brother? It should say she spoke about Moshe. Because the nature of the world is that a brother doesn't care about what his sister says. So therefore he was not so affected by the words of Miriam, his sister, who said about her brother. But still in all, as forgiving as he was for this, she was punished. So much more so, people that are not brothers, they went to see the land, they should take Muslim and know, you may not talk about another Jew. If you can't talk about your own brother who doesn't care if you say something about him, you definitely may not talk about another Jew in any which way, form or fashion, no matter what the person did. But since we know about Hashem, that the Zaya tells us, Kunizaya says that is Pashtusu the Mesha Bhadara and the Mahdish says that there's no dirt without Mesha, therefore we understand from where? Just like Mesha have been a Davind for his generation, for each and every Jew. And through his tefillahs he accomplished that each and every Jew was helped for many, many, many years. And they lived a nice, beautiful, physical and spiritual life. They had Lechem and Shemayim and Mayim from Ber Miriam and Ani Covid. The same too we have as Pashtus of the Mesha of every generation. We have that part of Mesha in our generation, the Mesha Rabbein of our generation, who prays and worries about each and every one of us of his generation, and continues through this, all the good, begashmius, uberuchnius, and will bestow this upon us, and will have only good, only pleasant, and will be ultimately have the all good and all pleasant, which will be, Shabbos, Menucha, Lachai, Elomim, Yom Shekule, Shabbos, with this Shabbos, we should be, with Mashiach, Tzidkenu, in Yiddish Shalayim, Shabbat, Shalom to all.